Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Vital, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. This is STEM Fatal. Welcome back, Steminists. Welcome back. We are, we're doing a double header. Yeah. Uh, You know, last episode and this episode, we're recording at the same time, and we've had a lot of coffee, so (laughs) (laughs) we are... Feeling crazy. We are riding high. Yeah. Hopefully we don't crash really hard in in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Could happen, could happen. Yeah, we'll see. We'll try to keep it, keep it going, keep it snappy. Yeah. Um, this is Stem Fatal, a women in science history podcast. Yeah. I'm one of your hosts, Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other host, Emma Dilemma. I gotta put this iced coffee away. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can't have that. <laughs> <laughs> Already down my dress. <laughs> There's also so many wires I'm like attached. Okay. Okay, okay, we're good. <laughs> Okay, it's the, it's the podcast you know and, and love. Yeah. 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 So, have you heard of the famous psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud? <laughs> yes, I have. Okay, great. Do you know what he did? He told me it's all because of my dad. Yes, he did. Yeah. Anything else about his crazy um, ideas. <laughs> I just feel like he thought everything was phallic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I've got. Those are two. That's actually pretty spot on. Thank you. <laughs> <His biggest> theories. <laughs> okay. But did you know that his daughter was also a psychologist? I did not. Yeah. He procreated? He procreated many a time. Mm. <laughs> I think six kids. Oh, or man. Five. Yeah. It's um, a kid heavy day. <laughs> Day. <laughs> he did not make them all in one day. Let's <laughs> just keep moving on. Okay. okay, so today I'm going to tell you about his daughter and possibly a better psychologist Ooh. than him. Well, yeah. Um, Anna Freud, one of the pioneers of child psychoanalysis and child developmental psychology. Very cool. And um, before I begin... <laughs> Okay. I just want to add that, yes, I know much of what Sigmund Freud did is kind of considered pseudoscience Yeah. <laughs> these days, um, given that the majority of what he discovered is not, or the majority of his theories, like, aren't falsifiable or, like, testable or anything. Also, and I'll discuss this a little bit more, he might have made up a lot of it. So not everything is phallic? Right. Okay. Or you can't test whether <laughs> I mean, everything is he's phallic. he's kind of viewed somewhat as like a ridiculous yeah. Yeah, person in the field of psychology. Yeah. Even though I think he's still like is a historically important person. Anna's work 
uh, yeah, like a lot of her early work channeled her father's work pretty heavily. Some of her later work, I think, was pretty important to okay. the field of child developmental psychology. And so I think her whole story is important anyway yep. in a historical scientific context. So I'm going to tell it to you. Awesome. I need to learn. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Yeah, That's I know nothing about children's minds. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Some of it's a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm excited. I'm very excited. Um, we also are a little crazy right now, so yeah. it's fitting. Their relationship is pretty weird. Um, Anna's and Sigmund's. Yeah. I, Can you yeah. imagine Sigmund Freud being your father? No, because I feel like he would just tell you you have daddy issues, which would make you have daddy issues. And she did. Yeah. And he did. And he, every, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Anyway, are you ready? Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm deep, no, I'm, I'm deep in thought about this relationship. And this how might would... be one of our more, like, not controversial, but, like, less of a hero story, more of just, like, a... A puzzler? Yeah, just an interesting, okay. intriguing story. Though I think she's really cool. Okay. Yeah. Maybe other people feel differently. I'd, I'd be curious what people in the field consider, how they consider yeah. her work. Because it was hard for me to tell, like, where some of it fits in. And I think her father's work has really, like, made people look down on her a lot. Okay. Even though I think some of what she did seems pretty, like, cool. And, yeah. Anyway. Okay, let's Let get into know. it. Yeah. yeah, we can talk about. We can it. we can skirt this I'm just topic like for days. I'm telling you how I feel about it without telling you anything about her. Okay, so Anna Freud was born in Vienna, Austria, Hungary, on December third, eighteen ninety five. Okay. To Sigmund Freud and Martha Bernays, and she was the youngest of six children. The family was pretty well to do in Vienna, so by the time she was born. Um, her dad was pretty famous and they lived in an apartment owned by the emperor. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of weird. However, Anna claims her childhood was unhappy. Her mother was fairly distant. Mm. I mean, sixth child, I think sometimes that's just your life. (laughs) Also just, yeah. An interesting, interesting family dynamic. Yeah. Um, And she was mostly raised by the family's nurse, Josephine. She was also reportedly extremely jealous of her prettier sister, Sophie, and competitive with her and her other siblings. Sister rivalries. Yeah. She was often sent to health farms because she discovered she suffered from depression and eating disorders as as a kid. Health farms sounds real bad. Right. I mean, I guess it's sort of like, uh, not quite rehab, but yeah. something similar, or and not a mental institution either. Yeah. But just farms. It's like yeah, I don't, know. I don't know if they would like force her to eat or. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. It doesn't seems weird. However, she did have a very close relationship with one person growing up, and that was her father, Sigmund Freud. So, in case. You don't know much about him. He is, of course, the founder of the field of psychoanalysis, Mm -hmm. which involves theories and related therapeutic practices surrounding the ideas that our unconscious mind drives many of our actions. Okay. And conflicts arise when our conscious and unconscious minds aren't in agreement. (laughs) Okay. 
So he would treat people essentially by encouraging them to talk freely about their feelings, tell, describe their dreams and fantasies and details, etc. And he would analyze those statements in order to determine what their unconscious was trying to tell them or like what was their unconscious feelings they were trying to get out, but their conscious feelings were like suppressing. Gotcha. I don't know. It's a little weird. And from those hours of his free association therapy, he came up with a bunch of super controversial ideas. First, he claimed that all neuroses stem from sexual abuse, which is repressed. When he first claimed that, people were like, that's insane. Yeah. (laughs) Even at the time. So he later rejected that theory and replaced it with his theory that everyone has an Oedipus complex. Still crazy. Which is the idea that all of our anger and unhappiness stems from repressed sexual attraction toward our parents. Sweet. Yeah. Makes me uncomfortable just having this conversation. Yeah. We'll move on. No, no, it's all good. And he also claimed that all women had penis envy. Like, he came up with the uh-huh. concept of penis envy and that it's a great concept. women are, are so angry because we don't have penises. <laughs> so just a really great feminist role model. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So despite many of his claims being completely preposterous uh, nowadays and pretty much debunked totally nowadays, at the time when Anna was growing up, he was a leader in their field. And he was dramatically changing the way mentally ill people were treated by doctors for better or worse. So I say for better or worse because he thought that people could be healed just by talking about their feelings and through not through using a lot of medications, basically, which I think nowadays it's kind of like you know, patient to patient. Some people need medications and some people just need to talk and like, you know, we've come a long ways in the last hundred years or whatever. But he was like, just come tell me about your dreams and I'll tell you what you need to do to like change. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So, I mean, he kind of invented talk therapy essentially. Okay. Yeah. Apparently he was also high on cocaine a lot. Which makes sense. Uh, probably, you know, caused a lot of these crazy thoughts that he was having, <laughs> having. And apparently he made up a lot of the stories and case studies that he wrote about. Or oh, sort of good. encouraged patients to, like, say things they hadn't actually experienced. Mm-hmm. So he might just be a total fraud. Yeah. Sigmund fraud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're the first ones to yeah. say that. Um, And anyway, I'm linking to a a really interesting New Yorker article that Mm -hmm. people should read if they're interested in learning more about, like, his legacy. Okay. um, And why, even though he was a really bad psychologist, he's kind of influenced the field Mm -hmm. dramatically and still does. He's still taught in, like, intro psych classes. It's kind of crazy. But he might have just been a total fraud. Yeah. But that's Anna's father. Okay. And the leading, like, psychologist of her time. Mm-hmm. And um, and she was really close to him and really admired him her whole life, mm-hmm. basically. 
and he was her greatest mentor in the field. So let's see. Going back, Anna, she didn't love school, but her father had a lot of famous friends, like writers, other psychologists, artists, who would come to their house, and she would kind of learn a lot by interacting with them. She, I guess, learned, picked up five different languages by just, like, Hanging out with people? Yeah, talking to people, going to the house. When she was 15, she started reading her dad's works and realized that he was writing things about her. Like, he'd written a detailed, in detail, like, one of the, a dream that she had talked to him about, basically, and was like, huh, thought I was telling you that. That's like father, <laughs> yeah, uh, I thought son, I was just telling you father, about daughter. dreams. Yeah. Uh. So that was kind of weird, but I don't think she minded that much, I guess. She finished her high school education at the Cottage Lyceum in Vienna in 1912. And in 1914, she passed the test to become a teacher at the school. Okay. And she apprenticed there for a couple years and finally started teaching. They thought she was great and invited her to stay on. However... In 1920, she resigned after experiencing multiple bouts of illness, which some things I read said was tuberculosis, but other things I read said it was her depression and anorexia, and I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's all three. I'm not sure. So, yeah, she resigned from teaching and decided to go into analysis with her father. Okay. Which meant that he started analyzing her. Oh, no. But she was learning from him how to analyze by having him analyze her. Okay. And there's, I didn't really find anything like what happened in that, in those meetings. Yeah. But she seems cool with it. Yeah. Like, she was fine with it, supposedly. She probably had experienced this her whole life. Yeah. And just, like, it was normal to her. Oh, man. <laughs> tell me about your dreams, sweetie. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you how you have penis envy because uh, of Have them. you ever fantasized about me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, so, so creepy. Okay. Uh. In 1922, she wrote a paper called Beating Fantasies and Daydreams, in which she traced the origins of a girl's constant fantasy of boys being beaten. Like, there, this was a girl her father was analyzing, and she started sitting in on these meetings, I guess, okay. and wrote up. And her dad would, like, be like, tell me more about these weird fantasies you're having where you see little boys getting beaten. It's <laughs> all so weird, Emma. This part <laughs> is really weird. Have you just gone, did you just go into, like, a, a deep spiral? A and, little bit. Yeah. <laughs> this it, part is, is strange. Okay. Okay. She presented these results to the Vienna Psychoanalytical Society and became a member of the society that same year. Okay. In 1923, her father was diagnosed with cancer, I think throat cancer, um, and she sort of became his caretaker as well as his stand-in at society meetings. Okay. So she would present things for him or, like, if he had to give a talk, she would go give the talk. And she soon began psychoanalyzing people on her own. And by 1925, she was teaching at the Vienna Psychoanalytic Training Institute on the technique of child analysis. Okay. So she 
was really interested in analyzing children, whereas her dad had focused more on analyzing adults. Mm -hmm. Some of the first children she began analyzing were those of a wealthy heiress to the Tiffany jewelry fortune, Dorothy Burlingham. Those, I'm sure, represent most children. Good representation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... It seems like they were real high society and like a lot of the interactions she had growing up were with very rich people who were like, I have so much money. I'm so depressed and I'm thinking all these weird things with all my time. (laughs) Beating these boys. Yeah. Uh, It gets better. So Dorothy had moved from New York to Vienna in 1925 seeking analysis. So Um, Her son had a skin disorder, which apparently was psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Psychosomatic. Okay. I don't know. It's weird. She had four children, and Dorothy herself sought out psychoanalysis with Sigmund Freud. Uh And she moved in with the Freuds and was like, oh, Anna, do you want to analyze my children while we're all here? Seems a little intimate. Yeah. Right? Like, I try not to move in with my... Oh, they live together for the rest of their lives. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Interesting. So, they, um, she quickly became close friends with Anna. You know, and many people claimed that um, they had an intimate relationship, but okay. that was... But Anna and Dorothy, like, vehemently denied that their whole lives. Okay. But we maybe we can discuss that more later. And Anna essentially became a step-parent to Dorothy's children. Okay. Yeah. And then... Psych- and psychoanalyze. So them. you can only psychoanalyze children that are you are a parent of in some way, seems to be... That's something that Anna kind of <laughs> said. Okay, cool. Okay. Man, Anna and I are on the same wavelength. Mm. So in 1927, when Anna's 32, she published the... Introduction to the Technique of Child Analysis, which described her methods for analyzing children across developmental stages. Like, I guess, questions to ask them and, Mm -hmm. like, what to do in those sessions at different stages of life to get them to say things or, like, I don't know. That, I couldn't, that's very long and I couldn't read it. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. In 1935, Anna became director of the Vienna Psychoanalytical Training Institute, and the following year she published her first major book, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense. And it became a founding work of ego psychology and established her reputation as a pioneering theoretician. So in this book, she describes different mechanisms of psychological defense and how our ego attempts to protect itself from danger. To elaborate a little bit, Sigmund Freud, um, before this book, had defined three separate agents of our psyche, the id, the ego, and the superego. Okay, yes. Where the id is our instinctual thoughts and actions, e.g. aggressive behaviors, lust, fun stuff, I guess. Um, the super egos are moral compass, okay. which are, you know, things that make us want to be good people, 
um, the rules of society, think like often taught to us by our culture, our family, our so- social circle. And the ego is our realistic moderator between okay. the id and the superego. Gotcha. So it tries to be like, hey, id, I know this is what you want, but society says, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This part is sort of confusing to me. I'll try my best. Okay. Okay. So when the ego can't successfully control the id, Uh our super ego makes us feel guilty, guilt and shame, basically. Okay. And so we use defense mechanisms like denial, uh, other ones, (laughs) in order to... Save our ego. Okay. I don't know if this is, if any of this is really, it's not testable. It's all sort of philosophical, honestly. Yeah. But essentially her book was defining those different mechanisms of defense that people use. In children or in everybody? I think in children and adults at this point. Yeah. Okay. So... That seemed, I mean, this is all, like, observational, just recordings from her different, like, meetings with people. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, when children want just a stick of butter, and they know they're not supposed to eat just a stick of butter, how they go in the fridge when you're not looking. No? I don't know if that's a defense mechanism. How they throw the butter at you. Yeah, like, um, or sort of like you want a whole plate of brownies, Mm -hmm. and you eat it, and you go... I'll work out tomorrow. Okay. But you you never work out tomorrow. And you know working out tomorrow isn't going to change. The fact that you ate 20,000 calories of brownies. Like just your psychological defense. Stuff like that. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. (laughs) I'm not using butter for physical defense. So this is her early psychoanalytic work, which I'm not sure like how much of it is still, like, relevant or Mm -hmm. what. That's hard for me to tell. Um, Okay. Moving on, though. In 1938, Nazi Germany occupied Austria. Yes. And the Freuds not only were Jewish, but uh, Nazis hated psychoanalysis and were burning all psychoanalytic books at the time and years prior to that. Yeah. And so soon after they occupied Austria, Anna and her brother Max were both taken to Gestapo oh, headquarters God. for questioning. Okay. Wait. Uh, oh, sorry. Was Freud uh, dead? No, he's, he's still, still alive okay. at this point. Um, they were taken in for questioning regarding the activities of the International Psychoanalytical Association. Okay. Because she had been like presenting mm-hmm. in London and all these places. Um. Interestingly, Anna and her brother both brought a substance with them, veronal or veronal, which is a barbiturate, a sleeping aid. Okay. Uh, In case the questioning turned to torture or internment, they could commit suicide with the amount of the substance they had taken with them. All right. So they were basically just like, if this is it, I'm just going to commit suicide. But the Gestapo let them go. Okay. Which is, yeah. And that's when the whole family basically decided to leave Vienna. And 
Sigmund Freud's longtime friend, Ernest Jones, who was then president of the International Psychoanalytical Association, got them visas and stuff to move to London. Okay, nice. Which um, most of the family left. I think most of Freud's sisters did not. Most of Sigmund Freud's sisters did Stay. not leave, and they ended up dying in concentration Ugh. camps. But I think all of Anna's immediate family made it to London. Okay. Really crazy. And Dorothy and her children, too, of course. moved with them. In September 1939, after the family had been safe in London for about a year, Sigmund Freud passed away. Okay. He had had cancer for like 10 years, I think, at this point. By that time, Anna was fairly integrated into the psychoanalysis scene in London Mm -hmm. and had been giving lectures on child analysis. There was, however, another child psychoanalyst in London, Melanie Klein, who had developed her own methods that conflicted with Anna. So her techniques for child psychoanalysis were at odds with Anna's, and they had been fighting basically for 10 years about what the correct way to analyze children is. And I think a lot of this is kind of outdated. Like, so the Freudian approach, Anna's approach said that an analyst was better if they had a close personal connection to the patient. Yeah. Whereas the Kleining approach said you don't need that relationship to analyze. They each thought the timing of certain developmental stages was different. And the Kleining approach claimed that Oedipal stage was much earlier than the Freudian approach. I don't think there's an edible stage. <laughs> so that seems a little like, I don't think yeah. that's a thing anymore. And the Kleinian approach claims something called the death drive Ooh. was more important in infancy than the Freudian approach claimed. Do you know Do what you, the death drive is? The drive to die. Oh. Like, basically, they, infants have a drive to die, like an instinctual drive to die, which I guess is like, True, if they didn't have parents, they would probably die. But, like, I don't think that's... That doesn't seem like a drive. That's just, like, they're helpless. Yeah, it's giving a lot of... Agency? Agency to our instincts. Okay. I'm gonna say, in an evolutionary context, it doesn't really make sense for babies to have a death drive. Right. Just gonna throw that out there. Yeah. But the name is cool. Yes. Okay. Freudian approach claimed children did not experience superego, while the Kleinian approach claimed they did. Things that I don't think are testable. Uh, I mean, maybe you could test, ask children if they think there are rules in society. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. If they feel guilty. Yeah. No. I don't know. Um, okay. As much as like this stuff seems kind of hand wavy, mm-hmm. up until this point in time, nobody like even really cared, at least in Western society, how children felt, how children's minds developed, and what made children happy and how ex- children's experiences shaped their personalities. Which are all very, very Yeah. Important. So yeah. as much as like this stuff might seem a little crazy now, this mm-hmm. was like the first time people were studying how children develop psychologically. Yeah. Which okay. is pretty remarkable, even if it's kind of weird, yeah. like, looking even back on it. They got a lot of it wrong. At least they were asking the right question right, that yeah. hadn't been asked before. Yeah. Or asking an important question. 
And from what I could tell, Anna didn't make things up the way that her father did. <laughs> so good. there's at least that aspect of it that makes it more rigorous in the sense that yeah. she wasn't fraudulent, uh-huh. as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. But honestly, his reputation has really clouded, like, all of her work, I think. Yeah. From here, her work shifted more, though, to focus on child developmental stages. Okay. And how, what kind of, like, mentality you could see at different ages in a child's life. Like, I mean, she still had this sort of psychoanalytical approach, like, when does the ego appear and how does it change and Mm -hmm. stuff. But it still was an important, um, she still made some important kind of strides. Yeah. Yeah. So she figured out when does the death drive end and when do they? Okay. Well, I'll go into it. Okay. Okay. So in 1941, this is still in London, Anna and Dorothy established the Hampstead War Nursery for children whose lives had been disrupted by the war. So they... provided education and care for children whose families had been displaced, like orphan children, even for women whose, you know, had lost their husband in war and had children to take care of. And they trained their whole staff in psychoanalytic teachings okay. and had them take detailed notes of children's behavior in the nursery. Okay. And... Anna and Dorothy would also, like, spend all day observing the children and talking about their observations, like, at length at night. And eventually they used all of these observations for in two publications, Young Children in Wartime and Infants Without Families, which are basically detailed reports on how children react to being away from their families and how children develop when their parents aren't around. Which is super relevant right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then after the war, they observed children at the Bulldog Banks Home for Children that had survived concentration camps. So these are children that have been taken out of the concentration camps and sent to this home. In publications of this group of children, they described the children's ability to find affection, love, and friendship amongst their peers or with alternate caregivers. Okay. Which is, like, the first time anyone found that, you know, although these children had been through trauma and separated from their parents, they were able to, like, build a new social group Mm -hmm. um, and find that and sort of replace people who normally filled those roles with, like, a different category of people, basically. Okay. These poor Mm -hmm. kids. Yeah. (sighs) Fuck. And this was one of the first works to describe child attachment and define ages at which children develop attachment to other people. So they could see like how old children were and if they kind of remembered their parents or like some of the older children had a harder time developing new attachments to caregivers because, you know, they had already developed this strong attachment to their parents. Yeah. Okay. And... So this is similar, um, if you've ever heard of the idea of object permanence. Yes. Developed by Jean Piaget around the same time period. Sure. Which is when he discovered that there's a certain stage at which children develop object permanence, which is when 
the realization that objects continue to exist even when one cannot see them. Okay. So, like, basically what that, what they discovered was, was this, but kind of in a new context where the object is another human being. Okay. And they were discovering that, you know, around the age of, like, one and a half, two is when children discovered that even when their parents weren't there, they still existed, essentially, and okay. could remember them. Gotcha. So this is really, like, critical work in child development mm-hmm. that she is not well known for because of all the psychoanalysis stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. In 1947, Anna and Kate Friedlander and Dorothy, and I think another woman whose name I didn't write down, I'm sorry, established the Hampstead Child Therapy Courses where they trained upcoming English and American child therapists. Five years later, they decided to open a full clinic, the the Hampstead Child Therapy Coursing Clinic. And it's in this clinic that Anna did um, even more rigorous work on child developmental psychology. For instance, she came up with Uh, really rigorous protocols for diagnosing children at different ages with different disorders. So up until that time, it was like you observe a child for like 20 minutes and you're like, they have this disorder. Yeah, a little hand wavy and that comparable across the board. Yeah, but she was like, no, we need referral. Like, why were they referred here? What was the environment they grew up in? Multiple interviews with their parents, multiple psychologists with differing views, like observing them and coming, forming their own opinions and stuff. And her center was one of the first places to really come up with a protocol for, for doing that rather than just observing and kind of giving someone a diagnosis sort of willy nilly. Okay. She traveled regularly to the U.S. to give lectures, and although she never pursued doctoral training, she received several honorary doctorates from different universities, including one from the University of Vienna. And I guess she was also named Commander of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Can she put, like, send people to war? I don't know. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a title. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had that. I should have looked it up, but that's kind of something I found late. In 1973, she was elected president of the International Association of Psychoanalysis, and she taught later in her life at Yale Law School. She taught seminars on crime in the family, and in October 1982, she died in London. Sorry. No. That's how how all of these stories end. So after her death, um, some of her last works were published. In 1944, the Hampstead Clinic was renamed the Anna Freud Center. And in 1986, her London home of 40 years was transformed into the Freud Museum dedicated to her father. Okay. Which was one of her final wishes because yeah. she had always like really admired him. So um, I think a New York Times obituary kind of summarized her contribution to the field pretty well. They say she virtually invented the systematic study of the emotional and mental life of the child and elaborated it in 50 years of 
observation, discussion, and writing. Earlier, it was generally assumed that children were arbitrarily motivated and <laughs> that discipline was the surest path to healthy development. And she, like, really debunked all yeah. of those ideas through her work. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that just people, like, didn't think about children. Right. Like, they were just... Which is crazy because everyone is a child, so... Yeah. And everyone had, like, 12 of them, so, <laughs> like, you spend a lot of time with these children. Yeah. It's weird that you don't think of children as having their own motivations and desires and feelings. Yeah. But people just didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Or a lot of people didn't, at least. Yeah, I think that is her legacy. Even if some of the more typical Freudian stuff is a little uh, not legitimate these days. Yeah. Yeah. She really, like, pioneered this new field of studying children. Yeah. Awesome. So Children that, are important. That's yeah. the stage where you, like, and a lot can uh, happen when you're a child. Yeah. That's important. There's not a lot of details on her relationship with Dorothy. They're very secretive. Um, like I said, they both denied an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. However, her father, uh, or Freudian psychoanalysis theory, <laughs> I think, was, like, against female-female relationships and thought that it was a result of trauma by the father, which is just like, or something weird like (sighs) that. So I don't know. I bet there was a lot of kind of weird feelings. Oh, yeah. Even if, I don't know. But, or maybe they were just friends. I have no idea. Nobody knows. Can't have two people with penis in one relationship. (laughs) It just never works out. Right. They just want their dad so bad. Yeah, they just want their dad so bad. <laughs> uh, anyway. It's upsetting. Yeah. I think Freud just kind of... Sig- sorry, Sigmund Freud kind of messed her up. Yeah. Yeah. How many of his, his kids were female? I th- Maybe half. Okay. Yeah. But she was the only psychologist. I didn't read much about the other children. Yeah. I just ran out of time. Yeah. I was just wondering if it was like all women. And he's like, no, no, no. I Women know she just had one s- brother, at least. Kids just want to sleep with their dads. Ugh. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Da-da. But she seemed less creepy. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, but she really, like, loved and admired her father her yeah. whole life and, like, perpetuated his work into her death. And Yeah. 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 He seemed to be the big thing at the time, so... I mean, he also led to some revolutions in the field and, like, big changes. But I think he kind of also led people astray for too long with all of his... Oedipus. Yeah. Phallic. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's that's Anna and her dad, kind of, too. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It's an interesting story, even if a little, like... Not as straightforward, maybe, as some of our other Mm -hmm. lady scientists. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like the process of science, often we can get things wrong, but that doesn't mean that the efforts to understand things weren't valuable. Yeah. And they didn't make contributions. I mean, if you're making up... Yeah. (laughs) If you're making up things, that's bad, but, you know... Yeah. Sometimes we get things wrong, but it was still valuable that people... Try yeah. to ask these questions or like had these ideas. So yeah, yeah. awesome. That yeah. was wonderful. <laughs> so out of my comfort zone. Yeah, me too. <laughs> for like so many reasons. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Bye.
This is our next section. Um, it's the women who work. Woo. Work, 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 work. 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 <laughs> it's been a long day. Guys, it's, it's been so long. hot all of a sudden. It's warm. I'm very caffeinated. <laughs> um, but, yeah, this is our section where we talk about badass ladies who are doing science today. Yeah. And... I have one that I could, I just couldn't pass up because I thought you would enjoy it. A and spider? I'm, spider person? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Everyone's going to... They're going to be like, is the second nah. half of this podcast just spiders? spiders? <laughs> and sometimes it is, dear I'll listeners. I'll try to find a snail person soon. Ooh, yeah, snail you. people. Yeah. Um, okay, so my... I only have one shout-out, and... Okay. This shout-out goes to uh, Amanda Colts, Amy Klassen, and Justin Wright. He's in the paper, too. He did good. Yeah, Yeah. okay, Justin. Yeah, Justin, you're in. <laughs> um, and it's a paper that came out in the Proceedings of the, uh, what, Proceedings of the National Academy of oh, Sciences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> PNAS. How do you... PNAS. Oh, PNAS, yes. <laughs> but it does... Yeah. Oh, yeah, it looks... It can be read as... Penis. Yeah. Anyways, so... <laughs> penis Envy. Yeah, Penis Envy. I have Penis Envy. I would love to be published in that journal. Oh, man. I think that should be the title of this episode. Yeah, that should be. Um, That's good. Yeah. And maybe The Death Drive. Penis Envy and The Death Drive. Sure. I, I love it. We'll think about it. Anyways, this Perfect. is neither here nor there. <laughs> but they wrote a paper called Warming Reverses Top-Down Effects of Predators on Below-Ground Ecosystem Function in the Arctic Tundra. There was a uh, like science news article about it where they ask if spiders might be helping to keep the Arctic cool under what? warming conditions. So that's what this paper has implications about. And uh, I was like, I must know. Yeah, I need to know the answer. So, in the Arctic, the wolf spider is one of the most dominant and abundant predators, uh, having 80 times more biomass than gray whales. Gray wolves. (laughs) I was like, no way! I'm just imagining the landmass literally covered inch to inch in spiders. No, uh, 80 times more biomass than gray wolves in certain parts of Alaska. Gotcha, gotcha. And wolf spiders <laughs> primarily eat springtail insects. Okay, yeah. And these springtails eat soil-dwelling fungi that release carbon dioxide and methane through decomposition. Oh. So okay. usually wolf spiders have top-down control on this uh, fungus yeah. by eating the springtails, which allows the fungi densities to increase, causing more greenhouse gases to be emitted. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So... You have high wolves, you have low springtails, then you have high fungus, and so you have high. Yeah. Um, the yeah. fungus emits CO2. Yeah, when okay. it breaks down, like, leaf right, matter yeah. and, and dead things. So, in this experiment, they set up large but enclosures in the... Don't the springtails <laughs> also emit CO2? I have no idea. Probably. I mean, they do. Yes, but I think... But the fungus, I guess, is just so... So much bigger, yeah. more mass. I think so. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's lower on the food chain, so it yeah. would have more mass. Yeah, it has more effect. Yeah. So in this experiment, they set up large enclosures in the Arctic, some with heaters to simulate future climate conditions, 
and some without, and left them for over a year. Wow. Um, And what they found was that in some cases, under warming conditions, wolf spiders had really high de- higher densities than you would see otherwise. Oh, okay. Um, and they don't exhibit the same top-down control on the fungi. So instead, they become more cannibalistic and start eating what? each other. And so they don't prevent springtails from having high densities. So you find high densities of wolf spiders that are eating each other and then high densities of... The springtails. When it's slightly warmer. When it's slightly warmer. I wonder if they're just more aggressive. Yeah, Why? I don't know. That's so weird. And this allows densities of springtails to remain high, and this decreases the amount of fungi and decreases the amount of greenhouse gases being emitted by the fungus. That's insane. So, and because I guess these are like, um, they're so dense they can end up having a big effect right? because they're so common and this is, you know, all across the tundra. So, you know, whether or not this would actually have an effect, like a noticeable effect is unclear, but at least in terms of like how this community, you know, might affect greenhouse gas emissions, um, it seems like under warming conditions, you get this kind of change. That's very weird. That might not be expected. So. Yeah. I wonder why they hunt less springtails when it's warmer. I don't know. Maybe their, like, nutritional needs are slightly different for some reason. Yeah, I didn't, um, I read, like, the beginning of this paper and then the magazine article, but so they might have, they might say something about it in the discussion. Yeah, hypothesis, yeah. But yeah. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Nice. The big effects of spiders. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's really neat. Yeah. And, and that's all I've got. Cool. I think I think we did it. Yeah. Um, so as always, if you like this episode, please rate, review, subscribe. Yeah, definitely. You can follow us on all of the, the medias, on the Twitters, on the, the Facebooks. You can email us, all stemfatalpod. We're not on Pinterest yet. But or Instagram. Any day now. <laughs> Just kidding. We don't have time, dear <laughs> listeners. <laughs> And uh, thank you to Caitlin Friesen <laughs> for her cover art yeah. and Artichoke for our uh, theme music. And we'll, we'll be in your ear holes next yeah, week. Yeah, exactly. All right, All right <laughs> stem you later. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for